0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild. Or if you would rather make a one time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world donate. <laughs> Hello, I'm Ayana Young, and I welcome you to Unlearn and Rewild, where we explore radical ideas relating to Earth renewal. Biodiversity is the greatest wonder of this planet. It's the way life works. It's The proof of the web that ties us all to every other creature we're so good at building walls between ourselves and nature around our bodies and around our minds we're googly-eyed in this technological hallucination and the well-being of our soil and all that springs from it is of no importance to most people it means everything though to vandana shiva in the millions she's inspired and educated in her tireless efforts around the world. Scientist, philosopher, feminist, author, environmental activist. Dr. Vandana Shiva is a one woman movement for peace, cultural conservation, and justice for the earth. Vandana Shiva was born in 1952 in Dehradun, India. Her father was a conservator of forests and her mother was a farmer with a deep love for nature. After receiving her schooling in India, Vandana Shiva earned a B.S. in physics, an M.A. in the philosophy of science at the University of Gulf, and a Ph.D. in nuclear physics at the University of Western Ontario. She is the author of more than 300 papers in leading scientific and technical journals, and over 20 books. In 1991, Dr. Shiva founded Navdanya, a national movement to protect the diversity and integrity of living resources especially native seeds. And to oppose what she calls the colonization of life itself under the intellectual property and patent laws. Hello, Dr. Vandana Shiva. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hi. One of the great features of this biodiversity web is that it acts as a safety net. It helps life adjust to an ever-changing climate. and. As the mood swings of the climate intensify, many species won't survive. An estimated half of all species will disappear this century if we fail to act meaningfully. But the more species that do make it, the better the chances of entire ecosystems surviving. So Dr. Shiva, through your organization, Navdanya, you've set up seed banks all over India to preserve genetics of plants. So in your view, Why is biodiversity so crucial? And beyond starting seed banks, what can be done on a global level to preserve biodiversity?
1: As you said, biodiversity is the potential of life to adapt. And we've set up community seed banks to really create a base of another agriculture that is biodiversity-based. Because what is called agriculture today is not agriculture. It's not the culture of the soil. It's not a culture of the land. It's the culture of oil and fossil fuels, which is why I wrote Soil, Not Oil. Forty percent of the emissions that are creating instability in the climate and pushing us to climate chaos of the kind that creates disasters that have already become real, Uh, taking lives, destroying ecosystems, destroying food and crops. 40% of that problem lies in an agriculture which destroyed biodiversity, replaced the functions of biodiversity, whether it was renewing fertility or keeping a balance between insects and friendly pests, allowing pollinators to thrive. That destruction of biodiversity was always justified in the name of increasing food production. I have spent the last 30 years of my life, since the problem started in Punjab, the land of the Green Revolution, to both understand what went wrong and to try and build alternatives. So what went wrong is what I call the monoculture of the mind, which comes out of an industrial culture, a fossil fuel culture, pretends to be more productive, but is actually destroying the potential of the land and ecosystems to provide the more we save biodiversity the more the land provides our work has shown that we can produce more food in our food for two planets and better food not nutritionally empty toxic food while we leave the biodiversity for all species to thrive not in tiny areas of wilderness but we bring the wild into farming i call Open pollinated seeds, the rewilding of seeds. I call biodiversity intensive agriculture, which has flourishing and teeming microorganisms in the soil. Our farm has six times more pollinators than the forest next door. And of course, GM crops allow no pollinators at all. Our studies have shown. So it's not the case that you separate islands of wilderness while we destroy the planet the foolish idea that we're providing more for humans. In fact, we are providing nothing for humans either while taking the planet away from other species. And I think it is time to overcome this artificial divide. I think it's time for movements to overcome the divide between climate change and biodiversity, erosion and extinction. The same problems that lead to climate change are pushing species to extinction. The same actions that will protect the species' diversity will also address climate change.
0: With all the modified genetics in the world, you know, thousands of plant varieties in trial, legally or otherwise, Kauai actually comes to mind just thinking of the horror of so many GMOs being tested there. And there's also GM animals and GM trees, all cross-pollinating with natives. So I'm wondering, will everything become contaminated? Or are certain plant families immune because they're sexually incompatible with GM plants? What are the prospects for uncontaminated life on Earth?
1: Well, the first is that very few crops are genetically modified, and they're in very few countries. Of course, the industry would like to pollute and contaminate everything, but they aren't intelligent, they aren't smart. They might call themselves smart, but a technology that could only introduce Two traits, both toxic, Bt traits and herbicide resistance trait, both are putting toxic genes into plants. In four crops, two traits, four crops, a handful of companies, largely one, is not a very stable way to do agriculture. Uh, So most other crops at this point are not genetically engineered. In any case, there are some. I love the millets. I love the small millets. The reason millets are called millets is because each seed gives a million seeds. They're tiny little grains. Industry has a very tough time manipulating these grains. And uh, they anyway are ignorant about the diversity people eat. So the more diverse our agriculture, the more protected we are. The more resilient our agriculture through diversity, the more it'll protect our crops. If all you're growing is corn, and you have a GM corn neighbor, your corn will be contaminated. But if your corn field is like our corn fields at the farm, full of beans and full of okra and full of nine or ten other crops, that contamination risk goes down. So whichever way you look at it, diversity is our insurance. But we can't then say, "Oh, that'll take care." We have to function as Earth citizens, and that's why I talk of Earth democracy. We have a duty to stop this violence against the earth, we have a duty to stop the creation of what I call a seed slavery and a food dictatorship, to push poisons everywhere, genetic contamination and pollution everywhere, just so one company can harvest super profits through collection of royalties often illegal, as in the case of India, which has what has pushed the cotton farmers to suicide. And 84 percent of the suicides among cotton farmers are because of debt, because of GMO cotton. 95 percent of the GMO of the cotton in India is now controlled through Monsanto licensing and they harvest the royalties. So we are talking about an ecocidal and genocidal system. Ecocidal because it is destroying biodiversity. Genocidal. Because humans are part of that web of biodiversity, economies rest on ecology, and every system of technology and economics that destroys the biodiversity of life on Earth also destroys those who depend on it.
0: So you began fighting for seed freedom when you realized that the forces of globalization control seed, and you've even compared this seed slavery to human slavery. Plants are denied their ecological purpose and turned into food machines, just like farm animals, and in such a way that squanders soil and water, fossil fuels, and habitat. So can you speak about how colonialism, the caste system, the social ladder, and and all the systems of dominance spill over to our treatment of the natural world? It is
1: because hierarchies that have no place... In an Earth family that have no place in a human family, have been artificially constructed through systems of power, and then been naturalized. Whether it is the domination of patriarchal structures over women, or it is the domination of capital and those who control capital, because capital is a nothing. Capital is a construct, but there are people who control capital. There are people who create corporations. There are people who hide behind the corporate form. And harvest those super profits they have literally absorbed every hierarchy of the past whether it be casteism in my view it's a casteism which says farmers don't breed even though every seed used by the industry has come from farmers often pirated but in any case all evolution begins from nature is continued by farmers and then there's a little tinkering normally Negative from the perspective of farmers and from the perspective of nature. Feudalism, which we got rid of, is coming back in the system. Slavery of the worst kind, which is making people slaves, but is making all life enslaved. And that's why I just pour all my breathing, and, you know, living time, I probably even my sleeping time, because, you know, consciousness doesn't sleep, um,
0: to put an end to the slavery. You've alleged that Monsanto uses the guise of humanitarianism to circumvent import restrictions on GMOs. For example, in Orissa, India, following the 1999 cyclone, and in Haiti, following the earthquake. So can you explain how the biotech industry employs this kind of disaster capitalism and and how it is patenting thousands of climate-resilient food varieties to profit from climate destabilization.
1: I have witnessed in the last decade and more that every time there is a disaster, it could be an earthquake, it could be a super cyclone, uh, it could be a drought. Monsanto is there to push its GM seeds or it's GM crops. In India they couldn't have pushed the seeds at that time because the laws didn't allow it. So they used the US government and care and other agencies to try and push the rice eaters of Orissa to eat corn and soya blend. And the farmers and those displaced complained to us and said, we can't eat the stuff. So I took samples, had it tested. It was GMO, totally illegal, wrote to the health ministry. It was banned from imports because it was illegal. And yet the narrative that's created by Monsanto and its lobbyists is I prevented people from eating. No, what we did was distribute rice, not just rice to eat, but seeds of salt tolerant rice, which we had conserved in our seed banks so that farmers could grow rice in spite of the salt. And then the farmers of Orissa gave that rice. When the tsunami destroyed agriculture in Tamil Nadu, two truckloads of seed gifts, we've had an earthquake in Nepal. And we were asked by farmers of Nepal to send them seeds because 50% seed is destroyed. Monsanto, I'm sure their hand is in it, tried to pass rules uh, to say only Monsanto and its subsidiary seeds can be distributed. It took us 10 days to work through this corruption to get open pollinated seeds to the farmers who had lost everything and needed to rebuild their lives. In terms of then trying to patent the very seeds that can allow people to rebuild and rejuvenate their lives after disasters, there are three myths being spread. First, that only genetic engineering can put salt tolerance and flood tolerance and drought tolerance genes. Why is that a false statement? It's false because Any complex trait like climate resilience is a multi-genetic trait. Genetic engineering only uses single gene transfers. It doesn't have the capacity to introduce these multi-genetic traits. These traits are introduced from pirated varieties and then all kinds of languages created to make it look like an invention. The 1,500 patents on climate resilient crops are basically a result of piracy. And all they do is read the genome of varieties already known to be soil-tolerant and take a patent, just like in colonialism, the colonizers would take a map, draw lines across it, and say, this is mine, this is yours. England, you take this. France, you take this. Belgium, you take this. Now they are drawing lines around life and chopping up life for their ownership. It's partly because my love for life is so deep my awareness of the gifts of life have grown so much the more I have studied processes of ecology and the lies of the biotech industry at every step, especially in times of climate change. Monsanto has bought up the single largest climate data corporation. It has bought up the single largest soil data corporations. They are imagining a world where they will have total control on all knowledge and they actually talk of big data me- meaning big brains no big data means empty brains because you have no idea what you're doing all you have is lots of numbers A strange form of life Kicking through windows Rolling on yards Getting in loved ones Triggering eyes, a strange
0: one. Many radical thinkers believe that with the advent of agriculture, of taming wild plants, humanity embarked on what has become a war on nature. Mark Shepard, author of Restoration Agriculture, says that annual agriculture constantly beats down nature as every year farmers basically clear-cut the land. So I'm curious about reconciling food needs with the need for wild habitat. Conservation Patagonia comes to mind. They conserve wild land and then buffer it with organic farms. So in your view, what are some ways to integrate food production with the dire need to protect and restore land.
1: Well, I have to say a lot of friends in the West who work on nature conservation have a very wrong reading of agriculture. They assume that violence against nature in agriculture began when agriculture started, which is not at all true. It started when the tools of war, after the Second World War, were introduced to make agriculture industrial. Why do I say that? I say that because the farms of the Western Ghats, they had even more diversity sometimes than shola forest next door. Because when people work with nature, they enhance habitats for nature. As I mentioned, our farm has six times more pollinators than the forest next door. That means we have created more habitat for wild species. It's an agriculture which is using lethal poisons, herbicides, pesticides that is destroying the habitat, not just on farmland, but in wilderness zones. After all, the nitrate runoff from nitrogen fertilizers is going into the oceans and killing dead zones. Albert Howard was sent by the British to improve Indian agriculture, which meant introduce what chemicals there were at that time, not that many in 1905, not as many as after the war, Um, but to reshape agriculture in India like the agriculture of England. And he arrived and found the soils were fertile, insects were flourishing, but there was no pest damage. And as he writes in the book he wrote called The Agricultural Testament, I decided to make the pest and the peasant my teacher. Now, this book has been called the testament for modern organic farming. There's a very strong paragraph in that book and I would recommend everyone who has exaggerated the violence and damages of industrial agriculture, the violence and damages of factory farming to all of history and all cultures. Howard says, agriculture in the Orient, you know, China, India were called the Orient in those colonial times and the West was the Occident. And he says agriculture in the Orient has passed the ultimate test of permanence. The agriculture of the small farms of India is as permanent as the forest, the prairie and the ocean. And that can only happen when you make your farm or your little pond with fish, like an ocean or like a forest. So what are the tools for restoration that produce more food? First is you cannot destroy the relationship between animals and crops. That's another thing Howard observed, that any agriculture system that has to last and not destroy ecological processes must have perennials, which means it must be agroforestry-based. And Indian agriculture was always very intensely forestry-based. My own father was a forester, and he used to tell me how there are more trees on the farms of India than in the reserved forests of India. Second... Livestock and animals cannot be separate. It's when you separate crops and trees and livestock and put trees in a forest, livestock in factory farms, and the annual crops as a monoculture that the damages begin. After all, it is a visionary called Matsunobu Fukuoka, whose book The One Straw Revolution promoted natural farming. The word was natural farming everywhere. He worked with rice. But he made it as permanent as a forest. So I do feel people need to look much more closely at the diversity of systems. The fact that this diversity of systems has brought wilderness into agriculture, whether it is the wilderness of the soil with diverse uh, organisms or it is the wilderness of the pollinators or it is the wilderness of every seed, every time. I work with seeds, whether it is to save them or to have them as a basis of an ecological agriculture. I see the wildness of that seed thriving. Because wildness is the ability to self-organize and evolve on your own terms. And when different species can do that, and we create that space for them, that is rewilding.
0: Here in the Western U.S., drought is on everyone's mind especially as these catastrophic wildfires rage on where i live the sky is is dark with smoke and so we think about chemical fertilizers and how they require huge amounts of water to dissolve and mobilize nutrients and in the western us over 90% of water is used by industrial agriculture so can you talk about how drought and desertification are tied to industrial agriculture and how traditional farmers cope with water shortages. First of all, traditional farming actually creates
1: water conservation. Our research shows that the more the organic content of the soil, which is the result of organic farming, Howard called it the law of return, I call it the law of return, returning to the earth what you receive, we actually increase the water holding capacity of soil. To the extent that with 1% increase, you can go up to nearly 80,000 liters per hectare of water storage in the soil. I have seen this happen empirically. Every time we've had a drought, our organic farmers haven't had a crop failure. The chemical farmers have had a total wipeout of their crop. So not only does industrial agriculture use more water, and my analysis in my book All The Violence of the Green Revolution worked out from government figures that it's 10 times more water to produce the same amount of food. It's such a waste. And the assumption was there's limitless water. But more than that, it destroys the capacity of the soil to hold water because that capacity comes from having humus in your soil, which comes from putting organic matter in the soil, which creates soil aggregates, and they then turn the soil into a sponge that can hold water. But this also is a solution to flooding because when there is more water holding capacity, then you have less flooding. More importantly, not only are chemical fertilizers guzzling, but the breeding of crops has made crops more thirsty. So I'll give you an example of the cotton. The cottons that India evolved, and India is a land of cotton, and we got our freedom through spinning cotton, Uh, in Gandhi's footsteps, uh, native varieties of cotton are drought-resistant. They grow in rain-fed conditions in very dry areas. The GMO cotton is put into a hybrid which needs irrigation. So you have the damage caused by use of fertilizers. You have damage caused by thirsty cultivation, water-intensive crops planting in very dry areas. We've just done a manifesto, and I would suggest... You and your colleagues read it. It's called Terra Viva. Its English version is available. And in that, we have tracked how land use linked to the spread of new varieties adapted to chemical farming have created more land degradation, have created more desertification, have also contributed more to climate change through producing more greenhouse gases. And in fact, the story of Boko Haram and the story of ISIS needs to be told through the soil. 2009 is when Boko Haram starts, 2009 is when Syria problems start. Both were a result of extended drought and extreme uh, weather events, extreme climate. Lake Chad has shrunk to 5% and less what it used to be. That is what is leading to the conflicts around Lake Chad in the area where Boko Haram has risen. It so happens the pastoralists are Muslim, the settled agriculturists are Christians. When I did my study on Punjab, it was so clearly an issue of sustainability. It was so clearly an issue of farmers saying our land is destroyed, our rivers are captive, uh, we aren't earning enough. It was fun to say it was about religion. Religion has become a very easy excuse to cover up the true story of a war mentality in agriculture devastating the planet and soils. We really need to start telling history from the point of view of the Earth.
0: You've written and spoken so much about water theft and water colonization. And I'm wondering if you can go into how India is being affected by this and where you see the water crisis heading. In
1: you know, where I wrote Water Wars, I wrote it partly because there were so many conflicts around water, including India. People were dying. And why were they dying? People have lived as riparian communities along rivers for millennia and they haven't killed each other this way. But when you create an agriculture where every farmer wants 10 times more water than they've used in the past. And instead of putting water, clean water back into the river, they're draining it off, creating waterlogged deserts, creating salinated deserts. Rivers start to run dry. That is the root of conflicts. But then there's privatization. When I was writing the book, someone leaked to me a Monsanto document, which said, water is getting polluted, water is disappearing, sustainability in the water sector will be privatizing it because these profits will be sustainable profits since everyone needs water. And they were talking about not just linking chemicals to seed as they've done with Roundup Ready crops but linking the chemicals and the seed and the water. So if you didn't buy their water, you wouldn't have a crop because the water would carry the chemicals. Thank goodness this reached us early enough and we had a mobilization and they couldn't do that then. But water, as you already mentioned, the biggest waste of it is in industrial agriculture. And water has to get enslaved when it has to be bought and sold. You can't sell a free flowing river But you can pipe that river, channelize that river, dam that river, and then you can pretend that that water is your property. The good thing is, just as in the case of seed, we've managed in 90% countries to roll back laws that would make seed saving illegal. And I do want to mention, in the US, in every state, on the basis of a 2004 federal law, state after state is trying to make local seed saving illegal through seed libraries, There is also a California law which says corporations are persons, only corporate financing can breed good seed, no level below the state, which means no county can make any law related to seed, including GMOs. And a neighbor is 30 feet away, which means you can't go to your neighbor one mile away and exchange seed. So this attempt has Been made everywhere, 90% of the time, we were successful through the Seed Freedom Movement to roll these initiatives back in the last three years. In the same way, water privatization, 90% of the projects supported by IMF and the World Bank so that these five companies could make profits, they have been rolled back. Because colonizing nature is an attempt to colonize the wild. And one thing about the wild is it'll burst free. Done so many things wrong I don't know if I can do right Oh, I,
0: oh, I
1: Done so many things wrong I don't know if I can do right
0: Women in nature share a history of oppression by patriarchal societies. You wrote one of the early works on ecofeminism in 1988, a book called Staying Alive, Women, Ecology, and Development. And if I understand correctly, you argue that oppression has escalated as industrial development has been imposed on the quote developing world. Men with machines are still wrecking the natural world. Despite all the talk about a paradigm shift, we're still wrecking the place. So how can feminism help societies reconnect to Earth and disarm the violence against her?
1: You know, as I've written in that book that was started in 85 at the big women's summit in Nairobi, which is when my publisher said, you know, this connection between ecology and feminism hasn't been made, will really you write a book? And I wrote Staying Alive. Why do I say the violence against women and the violence against nature have the same roots? Because it is the so-called scientific revolution and so-called rise of an economic paradigm centered on capital that declared nature as dead and inactive and valueless, declared women as passive, as unproductive, non-creative, empty heads, that death of nature and The exclusion of women from the recognition of their creativity and productivity is at the root of the violence. It's also at the root of the violence because by refusing to look at the creativity of nature, by refusing to look at the intelligence of women, violent systems were made to look like absolute creators, creators of food while you blast the planet up. 75% 75% of the destruction of the planet has come from industrial agriculture, which is only giving 30% of the food. And the GMOs are only providing 10% to unwilling consumers because if there was labeling, no one would be eating it. Most of it goes for biofuel and animal feed. That violence has aggravated. In India, in, just in the last 20, 30 years, more than 30 million girls haven't been allowed to be born. The brutal violence against women has increased. And my reading of this is... That when more and more violence enters the economic paradigm, when it enters your everyday thinking, then violence becomes the basis of your relationship. Objectification becomes the basis of your relationship. You have no source for reverence for nature, for respect for women. And the way ecology and feminism coming together can stop this violence is by recognizing that the highest creativity lies in nature, the highest creativity is in women. I have done campaigns on this silly golden rice, which will be hundreds of percent less efficient if it was to come to be. And in any case, it has now been proven the papers published to justify it were totally manufactured and the paper had to be retracted. A So-called science that has to be based on manipulation really has no place. Leave it to women's creativity. We can solve every malnutrition problem on this planet because women have always worked with biodiversity. And it's the marginalization of that knowledge of biodiversity that is at the root of malnutrition, that is at the root of hunger. More importantly, the ability to be compassionate, the ability to be loving, which survived in women. I'm not saying it is built into the genes of women, but it survived in women because women were left to look after the economy which was not considered important. It was not the economy of war. It was not the economy of profits and the market. It was the economy of care. That economy of care needs to be everyone's economy. And I see rewilding and creating economies of care as one process at its roots.
0: So I read that you and a band of other women acted to defend the forest in northern India by literally surrounding the trees holding hands. So were there any historical precedents that inspired that action or or how did that come about and was it successful?
1: the movement called Chipko, which means to hug which was my inspiration i call it my university of ecological knowledge and ecological activism because my phd otherwise is in the foundations of quantum theory in non-locality in quantum theory very far away i really learned so much from the women defending the forests through this act of deep love of embrace the women who took this initial action spontaneously didn't really know that there had been a precedent those of us who then started to do more research found out two things first that at the time when gandhi led the salt march you might remember the colonials wanted colonizers wanted to monopolize salt for profits to buy more guns to shoot more indians and gandhi walked to the beach picked up the salt from the sea and said nature gives it for free we need it for our survival we will continue to make salt we will not obey your laws and that was a very famous satya prayer the power of civil disobedience to obey higher law and disobey brute law. Exactly at that time, in the forests of India, in every part of India, and I've written about this in my book, Ecology and the Politics of Survival, uh, in the chapter on forests, in the western Ghats, in the forests of central India, and in my region up in the Himalaya, people were turning to the forest and telling the British, leave, these forests are our mothers. You cannot own them as your property. But even more historical than that is a movement led by a woman called Amrita Devi, who was defending a sacred tree in the desert of Rajasthan called the Khajri. Now, Rajasthan is a desert, but it's the most populated desert because centuries ago, they realized what is the actions we need to take to reverse desertification. Part of it was building amazing tanks, and the culture of tanks in Rajasthan is so rich. Planting these very, very drought-tolerant trees like Kejri, declaring every animal as sacred. So you're not allowed to kill animals, not the blackbuck, not the peacock. And Amrita Devi was following this religion, which is called Bishnoi, which means 29 rules. And all 29 rules are of nature conservation, protection of species. I think it's the only religion in the world dedicated entirely to protection of nature. And when the king's men came to cut the tree, to burn, to paint the palace walls with land, she hugged the tree and said, you can't cut it, you'll have to take my head. So they took her head. Then her two daughters came. They chopped their heads up. 270 or more villagers sacrificed their lives. When the news reached the king, he was, of course, outraged and totally banned the cutting off the sacred tree. So there is precedence. And I'm sure in periods of history even earlier where we have no record, people have sacrificed their lives for the protection of the earth and her diverse species.
0: Wow, I have chills. Thank you for sharing that story. Yeah, I feel people in the US and many other places are so severed from their ancestral traditions that they hunger for any and every glimpse into those rare places around the world that have not been bled out by globalization, where people hold dearly to traditional values and knowledge. And, and I know you were born in the foothills of the Himalayas, and your town Daradun, has probably changed quite a bit since your childhood, but I'd like to ask if you would share some of your memories, or even the memories passed on to you by your parents or grandparents, about that reality that village life what have you taken away from that upbringing that can help guide social experiments going on today from ecovillages to collectives to transition towns and beyond
1: well interestingly you know my other book on ecofeminism I co-authored with my dear friend Maria Mies in Germany Uh, it's just called ecofeminism and we have a chapter in there maria uh, wrote the chapter it's called they long for what they have destroyed the point you made about trying to look for places where the destruction hasn't happened Uh, so i was very privileged you know to be born in the himalaya my mother was displaced in the partition Chose to become a farmer, even though she was very highly educated and had a government job. And she said, I've broken all glass ceilings for women, and now I'm going to go back to the earth. This is what I'll do. So I grew up on a farm. I grew up traveling with my dad in the forest. And at that time, you know, we'd step out of the town and we'd see tigers. We'd see elephants. Wildlife was right there. The town itself was small because... The destructiveness of industrial agriculture, which is called the Green Revolution in the Third World when it's introduced to our parts of the world, and it's not green and it's not revolutionary, it's just an extension of the war that should have ended in 1945, that has led to a lot of displacement of farmers and the rush to cities. Most of the city growth is through slums where people don't find a place, a dignified, meaningful place. Our town was, you know, so beautiful that the British used to write about how beautiful this valley is, how beautiful the town is. This rush to big, build bigger and bigger cities is contaminating every town where there are benefits, where there are facilities. I'm very fortunate that I managed to return to my valley when I was asked by the Ministry of Environment to look at mining, which was destroying the valley. And I came and did the study for the ministry. And the study went all the way to the Supreme Court as a basis of a case. And it was the first ever environmental decision in India, 1983, where the Supreme Court ruled and said, when commerce destroys life, commerce has to stop because life has to carry on. And the mining was stopped and the polluting industry around that mining was stopped. So we got rid of pollution and managed to declare our valley a Green Valley. And then of course I built the Navdanya farm and the seed bank and the teaching center, the Earth University, And like I was saying, you know, it is as wild a place as you can have, but it also gives you food. A lot of diversity of delicious food. Um, So at one level, in my old age, and I can't say in my old age, because I am a senior citizen, or even though I don't behave like one, I behave like a young teenager, (laughs) ready to run for the next challenge. In my old age, in a way, that little part of the valley is like the valley used to be.
0: I believe most of us want to transition to a healthy world. And probably most people don't want the earth to die maybe not even Monsanto they're just drowning in denial and profits but more and more people are recognizing that the economy must contract industry must size down and you know population must contract and our living arrangements must reflect the dire needs of the planet so those who see it coming or recognize it's here and happening faster than we or other species can adapt, are calling this a collapse. Others call it a transition. So if you were to lay out a roadmap for navigating this era of change, what can we do? What are the real-world tangible steps the global community must take and is capable of taking for a graceful return to a mosaic of regional Earth-minded societies? First issue in the transition is to know that
1: ecosystems are collapsing, species have been driven to extinction, economies are collapsing everywhere, entire societies, like in Syria, if half your people are living in refugee camps somewhere else, you know, that's a collapse. It's a social collapse. I think in the towns of Baltimore and in the towns of uh, Missouri, we see a social collapse. But the key is not to respond to either fear. Or panic or hate. Because that is what is triggered for those who would like to maintain power in this period. When I hear the speeches of your presidential candidates, you know, based on fear and hate, they are actually making sure there can't be a transition. So the transition needs, instead of fear, it needs hope. Instead of hate, it needs love. The second is that this transition cannot happen while we think piecemeal. We all have limits. Either I can start a garden or I can be a good teacher or I can be a wilderness protector. But even while we play our little role in our care for the earth, we have to be deeply aware of the web of life. And it's only when we see those interconnections at every step, we will stop doing what society has done for too long, competing with each other. Climate movement competing with the agricultural regeneration movement. The labor movement having to compete with the environmental movement. Too long have we been pitted against each other by those who thrive on divide and rule. The third very, very important aspect of the transition is, you know, 250 years of, of paradigms in economy and science and technology have literally groomed generations to think that, oh my God, what's going to happen if I don't have a job? Oh, my God, what's going to happen when we run out of oil? Oh, my God, what's going to happen if I've got to return to the village? What's going to happen when there's no electricity? The only way we will make this transition is by looking at small farmers and their societies, looking at indigenous people and their societies, first developing respect for them, not looking down on them as primitive, but realizing that they created a very, very large footprint with a very high culture. We can only make this transition as an earth family. We can only make this transition through the joy of living, not being married to the junk that industrial society has created. You know, when I got into a flight after my PhD, immediately I defended my thesis in the morning and I was on a flight back home. And everyone would say, but you know, why did you come back? You could have been a tenure track put professor. I said, I know I could have done all that. But I know by the end of 10 years, I'd have become so attached to the vacuum cleaner and a car and a big mansion that I'd have been dysfunctional to do the real work in life. And I don't want to become dysfunctional. So I'm so glad I threw myself into what others would think of as deprivation. But I saw as liberation. Every time we can get rid of some of that industrial infrastructure junk, whether it's in consumption or it's in terms of dependence, every time we can... Through solidarity, whether it is in agriculture, where through solidarity with biodiversity, we produce our food and say, oh, we can produce better food without chemicals. So bye-bye, Monsanto, bye-bye, GMOs, bye-bye, pesticides. And we can do that in every sector.
0: So if we were able to come together as activists, how can we keep fighting for a diversity of issues, but as a united movement that can stand strong in the face of extraordinary odds? What can our unifying cause be, and how can that be agreed upon?
1: So you, you, you might remember, or you might not remember, you're so young, that WTO was stopped in Seattle. And, of course, the media started to say, oh, these anti-globalizers know what they are against, they don't know what they're for. And we said, no, 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 we know we are against patenting of life because we love life, and we respect the integrity and self-organization of life. We're against free trade in agriculture because we love our farmers, our soil, our food, and our health. And we know globalization of agriculture will destroy all of that. That's why I wrote The Earth's Democracy. So, of course, we have to first know what we are for. And we have to be for life in all its diversity. Not just human life, but all life on Earth. The second part of it is to widen our understanding of freedom and democracy. We've too long been made to believe That democracy is going once in four years or five years and putting a ballot and getting someone into power who then is controlled by the corporations and has no relationship with the citizens and will impose GMOs even when people don't want it, will impose laws that say you can't have labeling even though people want labeling, which is the dark act, which imposes monopolies on seed even though farmers everywhere struggle to defend their right to save seeds and their duty to save seeds. What we're really against is a continuity of what was started in terms of the knowledge paradigm with Newton and Descartes and Bacon, the declaration of the earth as dead and merely material for exploitation. The earth is alive and that sets everything else for us. Because the earth is alive, we must do agriculture in a way that the life of the earth flourishes rather than diminishes. Because we are part of the earth, we have to live in ways that our health And our communities and our societies flourish rather than become diseased, become violent, lose hope. In terms of agriculture, the challenge is firstly to save every seed we possibly can, just as we save children, just as we save anything else we love. Because everything in agriculture and in society is now hanging on the seed. Industry want to genetically modify it, own it, patent it, ban its free use. We have to defend the freedom of the seed, the freedom of the farmers, the freedom of those who can eat food from good seed. So seed freedom and food freedom is one. Just like an apartheid was created between humans and nature, and therefore between areas where humans live, which were giant cities and a shrinking wilderness, an apartheid was also created in terms of the idea of agriculture itself. And agriculture, as I mentioned earlier, has become so destructive. We don't need to have a separation of the countryside and the city because the city gets its food from the countryside. I've just launched a big movement in India called Food Smart City, partly because everyone wants to build smart cities. And we said, no, you've got to be food smart and then you don't destroy The villages, you protect the villages. You don't destroy your small farmers. You create relationships of mutuality with them. So cities surrounded by food sheds, which are watersheds, which are wilderness sheds, becomes the basis of local food economies. And the city itself becomes a food economy with food in every balcony, every terrace, every little garden. And that's why I spread Gardens of Hope everywhere. I call them Gardens of Hope because we started it with widows of farmers who had committed suicide. In fact, yesterday I was with widows in Punjab. And initially they said, but we don't even know how to grow vegetables. We've just grown wheat and rice. And I said, everyone knows how to grow vegetables because vegetables grow themselves. You put the seed into the soil and it'll grow. And now 5,000 villagers want to have these gardens of hope. We've got to create these gardens everywhere because it's only when we reclaim our capacity to feel we are sowing the future that will stop feeling helpless in the face of the exaggerated power of fictions. After all, a corporation is a fiction. It's a legally constructed entity. Capital is an economic construct. And through the garden, we come back to the earth as a foundational reality.
0: And from there, a whole new paradigm starts to grow. Going back to this capital power struggle... We speak about freedom of seed, you know, freedom of life, and I'm wondering if you can break down the double speak of free trade and give us your analysis of how the trans-Pacific partnership would affect India, And what would your strategy against it be if you're open to divulging as much? We
1: could recognize so-called free trade to be the unfree trade, because the first free trade treaty was actually written by the first corporation. With a collapsing Mughal Empire in India, 1711, I think it was. It was called the free trade agreement between the Right Honorable East India Company and Farukhshah, the then emperor. I think, and they bribed a clerk in the emperor's office for probably 500 rupees, which would be ten dollars today. So, colonization began as free trade. The new return of colonization through GATT and the WTO, was the new free trade of our times. Because industry had planned to control all our food, all our agriculture, all our seeds, but we built movements. You know, I started to build a movement for seed saving in 87 because I got a hang of where they were wanting to go. And it's only eight years later that WTO treaties were imposed. So we had an eight-year lead time to build alternatives and to stop their agenda and to build alternatives on the true freedom of nature and the earth and people, living communities against the fictitious freedom of giant corporations seeking profits at any cost. It's because they could not get all the control they sought, they're now coming up with TPP and TTIP and at the heart of these agreements are three elements. The first is more push for GMOs because they failed as I said in most countries. A bigger push for intellectual property rights defined in ways that there would be no knowledge that would be in the public domain. And the third is corporations have anyway been functioning as if they were people with rights that belong to people. The Citizen United decision is an example. The challenge to Vermont's labeling law by corporations saying our freedom of speech is taken away if we are forced to label. They want to now bring it into formal international rights through what are called investor state dispute settlements. If a government, through democratic responsibility, does what its people want it to do, the corporations can sue and take the government to these tribunals because there's no court that would work for this. And that's what they would like, a corporate rule where they are the judges, they are the courts, they write the constitution, they pretend to be people, and they rob real people of their humanity and their freedom. And they rob nature of its freedom also. So I would say uh, TPP and TTIP were to come into force. India, even though it's not a direct member of either of these treaties, would be hugely affected because we'd be a little island pushed through the globalized economy into this direction of corporate rule. Corporate rule, in my view, is the death of democracy, a further collapse of our ecosystems, and... Definitely the robbing of, I would say, about 98% of humanity of its right to life. 1% of the rich now own 99% of the wealth of this planet. And I pay tribute to the Occupy movement, which got this figure through intuition, which has been verified this since then by economist after economist. Now, an economy in which wealth is so concentrated, an economy is so divided, that the only workers there are are slaves. I mean, if you read the literature today whether it's the farms of Europe or the United States, or it's the big fishing vessels, they are working on the basis of slavery. So slavery is no more a metaphor. Slavery is the economic base of the way the economy is running when so much wealth is being extracted. And that's why in Terra Viva I've talked about the linear extractive economy that's concentrating everything in the hands of 1% versus a circular economy where we reclaim our capacity to live as one with the earth, and that can only happen through local economies and decentralization. And this contest between paradigms, this contest between different ways of thinking, will grow more intense in the next few years. And what we have on our side is our alliance with the earth and our solidarity with each
0: other. Thank you, Dr. Vandana Thank you so much for joining us and for your great work in India and everywhere. The organic movement is a peace movement in the most radical sense. Yes. Please let us know how we can help organize here in the U.S.
1: Well, I'll give you one last little thing where you can join. I'll be coming to the Heirloom Expo, and we are launching the seed Satyagraha for the U.S. As you know, I mentioned the salt Satyagraha where Gandhi told the British, you can't monopolize the salt, we'll make our own salt. Uh, we say the same to the Monsantos of the world, It's our duty to protect biodiversity, and you cannot come in the way of this higher duty we have to the earth. And uh, look out, look out on the 8th, it'll be up on the websites, it goes all the way from Thoreau calling for civil disobedience, and Thoreau of course is the ecological pioneer, but also the person who fought against slavery by saying I will not obey your poll tax, and King, and Gandhi before King, if we have freedom today, it's because... They were courageous people who said, there are higher laws we must obey, the laws of the earth and the laws of humanity. We are at that kind of threshold where each one of us has to invoke the king and the Gandhi and the Thoreau in us because they are in each of us. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today with Vandana Shiva. The music was by Bonnie Prince Billy, Tracy Chapman, and Hemant Shauhan. Kate Wolf sings our theme song. Production is by March Young and editing by Nicole West. I'm Ayana Young.